Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 142, The Night of the Long Knives. As the summer of 1933 wound down, Germany settled into a strange kind of peace. I say peace because every source of opposition to the Nazis had been crushed, their remnants fit only to be hounded into further irrelevance. Hitler had won his first great victory as Fuhrer of not just his followers, but the nation as a whole. And Germans were, by and large, okay with everything. I mean, the political opposition had been cowed, with those who couldn't reconcile themselves rushing off into exile. And those that didn't comply at first changed their tunes after a stint in Dachau, or one of the scores of other concentration camps being set up. Those choosing exile were joined by thousands of the nation's artists and scientists, men and women who understood full well what kind of creature Hitler was and the direction he was going in. It was certainly a brain drain, but not so much that it crippled Germany, as many more specialists chose to remain. The nation's Jews lived in fear, of course, and the clear-sighted members of that community also went into exile. Those that remained, well, they hoped against hope that the absolute worst wouldn't come to pass. Wishful thinking, I know, but German Jews had endured some pretty bad times already. There was the possibility that this might not be different. And just in case you're wondering, yes, I will be devoting separate space to the experience suffered by Jews and other enemies of the new state once it gets entrenched. My plan is to do a batch of episodes towards the end of the season concerning the pre-war stages of the Holocaust and other Nazi crimes against humanity which will then get a sequel series extending into the war years during Season 3. So, look forward to that, or don't, I suppose. Anyway, today I'm covering the firming up of the Nazi state once the political enemies had been done away with, which did culminate in a little internal National Socialist housecleaning. As mentioned, the German people were on board, one way or the other, with the new regime. Oh, they might have hemmed and hawed about the brown shirts going too far, or thought it was a shame that events had culminated in concentration camps. But when compared to the chaos of the Weimar years, the majority of Germans were ready to work under Hitler, even when they hadn't voted for him. Most people cared little for the lost democracy, only that their fatherland would find a way to empower itself again, and from there improve their own material circumstances through some good old-fashioned decrees from on high. But still being a new regime, Hitler and his cronies were sensitive to public opinion and understood that the harsh measures used to bring about the new state could not continue indefinitely, lest it test the patience of public opinion. And besides, they had won. A little stabilization was in order, and a new normal was called for. As early as July 6, 1933, Hitler warned NSDAP leaders that their success had made any additional revolution unnecessary. Why upset the status quo when they were now the status quo? This was directed mainly against the SA leaders, who were advocating a more extreme and egalitarian version of a national socialist state. And it was in response to the various federal ministries in Berlin starting to complain about the superfluous violence. Order had been restored, the brown shirts could knock it off. And Hitler wanted to keep the bureaucracy happy and on his side, as he intended to rule through them. With stabilization setting in, the SA found itself at a crossroads. Its purpose had been to street fight against the party's enemies, to march and intimidate, and to deliver propaganda to the masses. 
Their true calling had finally been achieved in the first half of 1933 when it came time to destroy the political opposition. Those services were no longer required by the second half of 1933. Their participation in the oppression of the people was not required either, as their uh, role in the concentration camps was superseded almost immediately by the SS. Heck, they weren't even really called on for the November 1933 election, which was intended to act as a rubber stamp for all that the Nazis had done to that point and deliver an uncontested control of the Reichstag. Not that they were needed, all other parties were banned, and the only non-Nazis elected to the resulting Reichstag were 22 unaligned guests like Alfred Hugenberg, who didn't matter and weren't about to lift a finger against the regime anyway. That election was so much a farce that there isn't anything to even cover, aside from it marking the start of the Nazi tendency for rigged elections here and there. But anyway, what I'm saying is that the SA found itself without a mission. Not that it hurt their popularity. Their numbers had swelled to over 4 million, and many veteran brown shirts found themselves blindsided by the effusive praise coming from people who six months previous had been spitting on them. Though there were new divisions within the SA as well. Part of why they got so big was because all the other far-right groups, which were roughly similar to them, like the Stahlhelm, for instance, were folded into the SA. Then there were the usual opportunists who only joined after the hard battles been fought. Veteran brown shirts scoffed at these newcomers. Then there were some SA men who were able to secure positions within the new state and ergo enrich themselves, while their less go-getting comrades were left behind in the same modest conditions they had always occupied. And of course, all the old problems were still there as well. The rank and file wanted that second revolution to finish the job of creating a nationalist but egalitarian Germany. The leader of the SA, Ernst Röhm, wanted to keep alive those old tensions, as he wanted to continue the SA's work of turning the nation upside down. He pushed for prosecution of brown shirts accused of crimes to no longer be subject to civil court, but rather to internal SA courts. This move served two purposes. It would put the SA further above the law, and it would bring it more in line with the army, which itself had its own courts, as militaries typically do. And this is where he started to push through a series of speeches in late 1933 and early 1934 for the SA to become a legitimate armed force, capable of fighting a war. Which was not so crazy. The army only counted 100,000 men next to Rom's 4 million plus. He also coveted the Minister of Defense position, which he would use to cement the SA as a parallel defense force and also an eventual replacement to the army. Hitler shot him down, instead made a minister without portfolio on his cabinet, which those positions typically mean sitting on the cabinet, providing input in meetings, and potentially uh, being assigned special tasks by the chancellor. It didn't come with its own ministry, making it largely useless by that point, as cabinet meetings no longer decided anything. When setting up decrees, Hitler would set up laws to be implemented with the relevant ministry, then presented to the cabinet for approval with no debate. By the end of 1933, the cabinet was no longer even meeting consistently and would before long stop meeting altogether. The impunity with which Hitler was acting, though, did gradually attract some scorn, although much of that was compounded by the restlessness of the SA. People were put off by the idle brown shirts, who would get drunk and attack random passers-by or vandalize a building for fun. And then there were guys like Rom who promised to bring an element of chaos back to society. People didn't like it. 
Thing is though, trying to complain up the Nazi chain of command was useless on such a subject. So influential people went to Vice Chancellor Poppen instead. The entire point of co-opting Hitler had been to control the Nazis in order to establish a kind of conservative dictatorship based on aristocrats and technocrats. That plan had obviously gone out the window, but Poppen remained, growing more concerned by the day about the brown shirts. Their brand of right-wing populism was almost as bad in his eyes as the more all-embracing internationalist populism of the left. Poppen was still the guy standing behind Hitler in the cabinet, but by the start of 1934 was hopelessly isolated. The physical state of President von Hindenburg did create a potential, although highly unlikely, opening for him. Now, Hindenburg himself was kind of in a dicey spot, too. He still had the power to dismiss Hitler and issue laws by decree in his own right as well, and could revoke all that the Nazis had done. Thing was, though, if he did that, Hitler could just say, make me leave, and that would be that. Inside of a year, the government apparatus had fallen into Nazi hands, every other political alternative was gone, and Hindenburg would have to rely on a tiny army that sympathized with the Nazis to fight a civil war against the SA. At the same time, Hitler didn't want to test Hindenburg's power, especially when things were going so well. And Hindenburg was reaching his end by early 1934. In April of that year, he fell ill and later decamped from Berlin at the start of June to his estates in eastern Prussia, so as to live out the handful of days he had left to him. His death was unlikely to shake anything up. The most probable outcome was the one that happened, where Hitler usurped the powers of president for himself, but the Nazi leadership were a conspiratorial and paranoid lot and feared that someone else would try and seize the presidency somehow. Poppen himself held that very ambition, though how he imagined to utilize the office if he gained it, I have no idea. The only possible card he had to play was whipping up the disgust that most everyone was feeling against the SA and present himself as the person who could rein them in. Hitler, for his part, was already working to try and reconcile the SA with the army, as well as to redefine the mission statement of the brown shirts. In a joint meeting between SA and army officers on February 28, 1934, Hitler insisted to both sides that cooperation was vital. The economic programs being implemented would only temporarily alleviate the pain the nation had gone through, and that long-term, the only possibility for a viable future for Germany was to launch a war of conquest in the East. He looked at Rom pointedly and said that as such, a people's militia would be wholly inadequate for such a role. The professional army would be the centerpiece of any military action. The SA would withdraw to its internal role of serving the Nazi party. Two concessions were made to Rom. The first, that SA units would be allowed to participate in patrolling the border, and that while conscription was still forbidden, the SA would provide military training to those aged 18 to 26. It was not at all what Rom and the other SA officers had in mind. Afterwards, Hitler excused himself while the SA and army officers had a joint luncheon in Rom's home, a mansion commandeered from a ruined millionaire. It was reportedly tense, but the two groups at least were superficially cordial with each other. That changed when the army men themselves took off, leaving the SA leaders by themselves. Rom, a little deep in his cups, shouted, what that ridiculous corporal says means nothing to us. I have not the slightest intention of keeping this agreement. Hitler is a traitor and at the very least must go on leave. If we can't get there with him, we'll get there without him. The outburst shocked even the discontented SA leaders. 
and one of them, Victor Lutze, later went tattling to Hess. However, Hess was disinclined to get involved with the whole affair brewing within the SA, and Lutz opted to travel to Berchtesgaden to warn Hitler personally. Hitler, though, displayed the same indecisiveness that he had displayed when dealing with the Strasser brothers. He told Lutze to just wait and see how the situation would develop. Rom in the ensuing months would return to a publicly bellicose position, declaring to the foreign press corps that those who opposed the brown shirts were reactionaries and bourgeois conformists. The SA is the National Socialist Revolution. What Rome probably didn't realize was that his words and actions were playing directly into the hands of his enemies among the Nazis. His most immediate foe, as you might imagine, came from the rival organization to the SA in the National Socialist Movement, the SS. But Himmler was slow to turn against Rom, which, as I mentioned last week, they had, you know, some personal history, Rom having been a mentor figure to Himmler in the early days following World War I. The main instigator turned out to be Reinhard Heydrich, leader of the SD, which was a sub-department of the SS that was concerned with intelligence gathering and spying. Heydrich saw Rom as an obstacle to increasing the power of the SS, and therefore his own power as well. Heydrich had established support in the army through General Walter von Reichenau, who was Defense Minister von Blomberg's number two. Reichenau was probably the most influential pro-Nazi officer in the army and favored Hitler's ideology and aims of conquest. But he was still an army man and couldn't abide the SA. After Lutze had delivered his warning to Hitler in early March, he also dropped in on Reichenau and gave him the same information. Reichenau would later comment that Lutze would be a perfect replacement to Rom as he was both loyal and harmless, which is exactly what wound up happening. Reichenau took the warning to heart and encouraged Heydrich with planning an internal Nazi purge. Again, Himmler was hesitant to plot against Rom, and he also feared that if violent action were taken against the SA, that it would rebound against the SS as well. But then, Goering joined in the conspiracy. Goering's motivation was that he wanted to be put in command of the combined German military at some point before the planned war kicked off. At the time, he was still the master of the Prussian police forces, which he had organized into the start of the Gestapo, which I'll get into in a future episode. Himmler was enticed by an offer from Goering that in exchange for the SS handling Rom and the SA leadership, the Gestapo would be placed under the control of the SS. This was a powerful instrument to be handed over, but showed where Goering's and many other Nazi leaders' priorities were even by early 1934. The objective of the new state was to launch a war of conquest, and being a military chief was seen as a more likely source of power and prestige than internal security duties, especially since all the grand battles at home had already been won already. Removing the SA as a threat to the military was in Goering's interest. Himmler agreed to the arrangement in April, and for a time, Heydrich oversaw both the SD and Gestapo, which has led to the two groups being mixed together sometimes, which is fair enough. They worked together, and their responsibilities overlapped pretty hard. The deadly game was afoot, with Himmler quietly alerting SS commanders across Germany to be prepared to strike against their SA counterparts in the dead of the night in a decapitation strike, similar to how they had handled the communists a year previous. Heydrich busied himself gathering information to try and justify a case against Rom. Gathering information would not prove difficult. Many SA leaders were actually SS infiltrators, as Heydrich had been thinking about this kind of thing for a very long time. The problem was the SA weren't really plotting an uprising, despite bold words coming from Rom and the others. 
The group had some caches of secret weapons, but nothing major, certainly not anything that would be considered a sin in a court of Nazi law. The great downfall, though, of Rom was that he simply would not shut up. Despite not actually planning anything, he thought he could bully Hitler into compliance, but all he was doing was providing ammunition for Heydrich. For his part, Heydrich resorted to concocting false reports of planned uprisings, sweetening the story by claiming that Rom was in touch with General von Schleicher to act against the regime. Reichenau was himself growing increasingly agitated by May and urged Heydrich to shut up the boisterous SA by force. For that purpose, he provided the SS access to army barracks to work from and small arms if necessary. The extended nature of the plot also meant that as the time to strike drew closer, the list of names to be executed grew. And by list, I actually mean lists, plural, because all the major plotters had one. Heck, even the Gauleiter of southern Bavaria had one. Everybody outside the SA was getting in on the action. Funny thing about that was that Rom and the others were totally oblivious to what was swirling around them. They had no idea that their own fellows were about to drop the hammer. In fact, by early June, it seemed to them that tensions would actually decrease. Germany was entering into negotiations with the UK and France over rearmament, and Hitler didn't want the SA's military training exercises complicating things. On June 4th, he ordered Rom to demobilize the SA for a month and send everybody home. Something Rom wasn't thrilled about, but he complied, dispersing the SA at a critical time. Hitler, meanwhile, was occupied dealing with the murky conglomeration of conservatives that congealed around Papen. Always wishing to avoid an internal conflict, Hitler wanted to break the grouping and keep Papen around as a useful servant, as well as retain the services of the influential surrounding him. But then on June 17th, Papen delivered a speech before the University of Marburg. He railed against a potential second revolution, without naming, but definitely meaning the SA, and called out the sorry characters of those who presumed to save Germany, finally condemning their personality cult. That last bit was notably explosive, as it clearly meant Hitler. The audience roared its approval, and Goebbels had to work overtime to suppress the contents of the speech from getting out. The propaganda chief was at best partially successful, and his actions set Papen off. He immediately went to see Hitler and threatened to resign his position and go immediately to Hindenburg in East Prussia over the speech's ban. Hitler for once played things calmly, saying that Goebbels had indeed overstepped his bounds and countered by offering that before Papen resigned, they should both go to the president and sort everything out. On June 21st, the pair were set to meet with Hindenburg and Blomberg, who was already there. Blomberg told Hitler before the group meeting that the only way to resolve the fresh tensions was to remove the SA, or else Hindenburg would declare martial law and handle things through the army, bypassing Hitler and the NSDAP. Hindenburg himself was less blunt, but ordered Hitler to take care of the troublemakers, lest the army had to. Hitler was finally being forced into action. Either he got rid of Rahm and the others, or Hindenburg would dismiss him and use the army to install Poppen. Luckily for him, the trio of Heydrich, Goering, and Himmler were way ahead of him and had planned out what needed to be done. Back in Berlin on the 22nd, Hitler summoned Lutzen and informed him that Rom and many others would have to be removed. No orders coming from the SA headquarters in Munich were to be obeyed. On June 25th, Hitler told Blomberg that the plan was set. On the 27th, Sepp Dietrich, leader of the Führer's personal Lebensdarte SS bodyguard unit, told Blomberg that they would be deploying soon and would need to pick up weapons from the army, something Blomberg was ready and willing to provide. 
Dietrich is a good name to remember. He would rise through the ranks of the Waffen-SS and became a prominent general late in the war, being one of the main commanders during the Battle of the Bulge. Hitler would learn that he had to act fast, as he was on the clock. He was in the city of Essen on June 28th, along with Goering and Lutze, for the wedding of a local Gauleiter. He received a phone call from Hitler, advising him firstly that an SA coup was imminent. It wasn't, but the second piece of news was very real. Oskar Hindenburg had informed Himmler that Poppen was going back to East Prussia on the 30th to visit his dad and make one last case to use his presidential powers to rein in both the SA and Hitler himself. Hitler immediately phoned Rom, who was still oblivious to what was happening, and ordered the SA chief of staff to gather every brown shirt leader he could and report to the resort town of Bad Weisse in the Bavarian Alps on June 30th. Rom reportedly returned from the phone call, apparently eager to meet with Hitler and pitch his own point of view one more time. Goering flew back to Berlin on the 29th and ordered Dietrich to begin deploying his men. Two companies of SS troops boarded trains and headed south to Bad Weisse, stopping in a Dachau to pick up reinforcements from the concentration camp. Word of what was happening filtered to the larger army, and many officers sympathetic to the SA, or others who feared being drawn into a civil war, voiced protest to the actual commander-in-chief at the time, Werner von Fritsch, who had replaced Hammerstein at Quart in January. Fritsch had kept himself apart from the intrigues going on in Blomberg's ministry and summoned Reichenau. Fritsch and another general explained that by all indications, there was no sign of an SA uprising and that a purge wasn't necessary. Reichenau listened to them and coldly replied, that might all be true, but it's too late. Heydrich, for his part, worked to get as many army officers on board as possible at the 11th hour by distributing fake orders from Rome, ordering an uprising, and making sure they arrived on the desks of the regional military headquarters. Himmler did a bang-up job panicking Hitler on the night of the 29th, telling his Fuhrer that the SA were actually set to march on Berlin the next day, while in Munich, SA troopers were already marching. Which was true, but they had been lured out by the spread of leaflets created by the SD, urging them to do so. Now believing the SA actually was in revolt, Hitler went into crisis mode. He ordered the harshest measures possible to be taken against the SA leadership and flew down to Bavaria at 2 a.m., arriving in Munich at 4 a.m. on the 30th. After personally overseeing the arrest of several SA leaders, Hitler and a group of SS and Bavarian police headed to Bad Weisse by car. They arrived at 6.30 a.m., and Hitler led the group armed with his own revolver into the hotel the SA men were staying. He was the first into Rom's room, where he raised his pistol at his old comrade and said quietly, Ernst, you are under arrest. Which, usually you don't have a dictator personally making arrests at gunpoint, so this is kind of an odd historical sight. When Rom protested, Hitler called him a traitor and ordered him out. Men led by Lutza and Goebbels swept the other rooms and placed the SA officers under arrest. One of them appealed to Lutza, saying that they had done nothing. Lutza simply muttered, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. The only hiccup came when they were set to leave, and Rom's personal bodyguard unit of 40 brown shirts arrived on the scene. They were not happy about the situation, but obeyed when Hitler ordered them away. They probably also kind of thought, eh, what kind of choice do we have at this point? We obviously see what's happening. The convoy then made its way back to Munich, stopping passing cars on the way in order to intercept SA leaders still making their way to Bad Weisse for the conference. The group returned to the NSDAP headquarters in Munich by 9.30 a.m. to find that the army had deployed troops to protect the building. Goebbels quickly telephoned Goering back in Berlin and informed him that the purge was underway. 
the SS was deployed in Berlin, and over three days, regime enemies were rounded up and shot. An annoyed Papen, not having left yet for East Prussia, angrily approached Goering for overstepping his bounds. In Hitler's absence, it should have been the vice-chancellor who dealt with insurgents. Moreover, it should be Hindenburg to declare a state of emergency, not Hitler. Unfortunately for Papen, Goering's offices were filled to the brim with SS men armed with rifles and machine guns. He ordered Papen to return home and shuffled him off under guard. On the way back, Papen witnessed cop cars careening through the streets, sirens blaring as the purge reached Berlin. Papen's own people were not spared. His offices were raided, his press secretary shot dead on the spot, and many of his staff arrested. The writer of his June 17th speech was taken to a Gestapo dungeon and shot there. When Papen got back to his home, he found it under SS guard and the phone lines cut. He was a prisoner himself. Two Gestapo agents arrived at the home of General von Schleicher, the ex-chancellor, and were allowed in by the household cook. They found Schleicher at his desk in his study. The two agents asked if he was Schleicher, and the general said, Yeah, and the two agents immediately took out their pistols and gunned him down. His wife was on the scene and rushed to his body, and she was killed as well. Another army officer and friend of Schleicher's, General von Bradau, was killed outside his front door. It was a real sign to how many bridges Schleicher had burned, even in the army, that the Reichswehr didn't lift a finger over the murders of their own. A few officers, Schleicher's friend uh, Hammerstein Accord among them, would protest, but an attempt at investigating the killings went nowhere. Everybody knew what had happened, and the matter wasn't up for debate. Gregor Strasser, who had foolishly remained in Germany, was picked up off the street and later shot in his holding cell. Back in Munich, Gustav Ritter von Kahr, the state commissioner of Bavaria who had so vexed Hitler during the Beer Hall Push, was picked up and driven off. His body was later found hacked to pieces outside Dachau. Back in Munich, by 5 p.m., Hitler was convinced by Goebbels and Hess's assistant, Martin Bormann, that most of the SA leaders were to be shot. Rome, though, was left off the final list, however, as Hitler still couldn't bring himself to do it. Hans Frank, the NSDAP's lawyer and at that point the Bavarian Minister of Justice, visited Rome in his Munich holding cell. He couldn't offer much to Rome in the way of information or assurances, and Rom simply asked that his relatives be looked after. He mused to Frank, All revolutions devour their own children. When Frank rose to leave, Sepp Dietrich walked onto the cell block with the kill list. Frank protested the illegality of the executions and phoned the party headquarters. He talked to Hess, who passed the line over to Hitler. Frank received a withering tirade, explained to him that orders from the Fuhrer were never to be questioned, and that as Reich Chancellor, his jurisdiction was far superior to Frank's. This was the end of the protests, and six men were led out of their cells and shot. Hitler arrived back in Berlin at 10 p.m. by plane, where he informed Goering and Himmler that Rom was to be spared. The pair looked at each other, knowing that wasn't an option. It took them until the afternoon of July 1st, but they finally got Hitler's support that Rom had to die. He was to be offered the chance to commit suicide first, and Theodor Eicke, the commander of the Dachau concentration camp, delivered Rom a pistol with a single bullet. He and his SS team waited for a shot for about 15 minutes, and after not hearing one, re-entered the cell block and did the deed themselves. In the aftermath of what came to be called the Night of the Long Knives, Victor Lutze was placed in command of the SA. The group size was scaled back to 40%, and it was reduced to a supporting arm of the Nazi party, which itself had lost prominence in Hitler's regime. They would never again get close to forming a Nazi army. They were eclipsed immediately by the SS, and their purpose would grow muddled as the organization became something of a backwater. 
a relic of a time gone by. And if the Reichswehr were initially enthusiastic about the purge, well, <laughs> their leaders broke out the champagne to celebrate, after all, their joy was quickly dashed. First of all, it was noted by Blumberg that the younger officers did not share their elders' glee. And secondly, almost as soon as the SA was removed as a threat, it became obvious the SS would rise to replace it. Sept Dietrich's bodyguard formation would not lose its militarized character, and would indeed be expanded and treated as a military unit from then on, eventually becoming the first of many Waffen-SS combat divisions. Rom's dream of a National Socialist Army would be realized by his former protege Himmler. Hindenburg responded to the incoming news from Berlin by telling his chief of staff, I told you so, Hitler should have taken care of Rom sooner. The president sent Hitler a telegram congratulating him on the success of the purge and hoping that an internally peaceful Germany could again look forward. Papen, on the other hand, was understandably chagrined by the whole affair. He railed publicly against the illegality of the regime and how so many of his own people had been caught up in the purge. Hitler addressed the Nazi Reichstag on July 13th and attempted to throw a bone to Papen by claiming those who had gone too far were to be punished, which, spoiler, they weren't, and that otherwise the excitement was over and Germany could safely be called united again. The Reichstag then unanimously passed a bill legalizing the executions after the fact. Response abroad was one of horror, and many called Nazi Germany a gangster state. An annoyed Hitler did a whataboutism in reply by saying the Soviet Union was way worse, guys. For the German people, though, the purge was almost a relief. In a single stroke, the SA had been defanged, and the most hated aspect of the regime relegated to ceremonial roles. They weren't all privy to the details, which helped, and Hitler came away with his position enhanced. The SA finally, finally weren't a problem, and Poppins' bid to challenge him was soundly defeated. And the SS would never pose the same problem as the SA, because its leaders were blindly loyal to him. It had all come up Hitler. This does bring me close to the end of the story of the establishment of Nazi Germany, and certainly the last bit of high drama. But before I move on to the next miniseries, I want to spend one more episode covering how National Socialism came to dominate the lives of Germans, how they embraced the Nazi ideology, and how Germany truly became Nazi in such a short time. Because as dramatic as all the conspiracies and civil conflicts have been, what is ultimately important is just how the German people subsumed themselves to the new regime and how they would permit themselves to be used for the purposes of murder and conquest. Join me for that next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.